0: So, this evening I want to explore the theme that we really started um, actually two days ago and continued this afternoon of speech practice in difficult situations. Another way we might say it is speech practice when there are so-called difficult people. And the difficult person may be moi. (laughs) 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 Difficult in quotation marks (laughs) in terms of uh, seeing others or even ourselves that way. Just as in our meditation practice, our practice quickens when we become interested in our own suffering. So our speech practice can quicken when we become interested in difficulties. When, we, when they uh, intrigue, us, intrigue us. And of course, we have to know personally where we are and not take on, as it were, too high a degree of difficulty. But rather look for the appropriate level of difficulty. But taking difficulties as opportunities for learning, as opposed to simply curses, problems, something to be gotten rid of, will totally change both our speech practice, and I think more broadly our spiritual practice, <clears throat> what this really means is nothing is left out of our practice. We don't just practice in when it's easy or when it's uh, comfortable. But that increasingly we become interested in the challenging situations and the challenging situations involving speech, and involving people that we find it difficult to be with and keep our centers. Another way of saying that, there can be a real value in being tested some. (laughs) And I think part of what we want to do with our exercises, some of the ones we've already done and some that we'll do tomorrow, We'll continue to give practice, really, in bringing these tools that we've been developing uh, to challenging situations and really having time here and hopefully uh, beyond the retreat chances to practice, almost like like we are um, practicing the martial arts in a way. You know, we're practicing um, much as the uh, some of the civil rights demonstrators did role plays before they went out into the world to strengthen their capacity to know what their reactions might be and to see how can I be with this difficult situation with some preparation, with some training, seeing it as practice and seeing it as actually continuous with uh, spiritual development. There's a wonderful book from the 8th century that probably some of you know by Shantideva called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. The Bodhisattva is the being who's dedicated to both, uh, as it were, self-awakening and helping others awaken. And there's a line in the chapter, I think it's the sixth chapter on patience, where there's a detailed analysis of how to work with a so-called enemy. The discussion of the enemy occurs in the chapter on patience. (laughs) And it said, there's a line there which goes like this. Just as if I found unexpectedly a jewel in my house so I should, so I should greet my enemy, for my enemy assists me with my conduct of awakening, that sense of uh, appreciating the challenge. In the Sufi tradition, there's a, a poem by Hafiz really saying the same thing in more, more, um, uh, more in the language of, of that tradition. I had to seek the physician because of the pain this world caused me. I could not believe what happened when I got there. I found my teacher. Before I left, my teacher said, up for a little homework yet? <laughs> okay, I replied. <coughs> well then, try, thinking all, try thanking all of the people who have caused you pain. They helped you come to me. And there's a um, there's, um, wonderful story, kind of an intense story, um, in the Discourses of the Buddha, which I want to uh, read to you. It's in, it's in this is the Middle-Length Discourses of the Buddha, Majjhima Nikaya. Wonderful book if you want to read and get a sense of the core of the Buddha's teachings and their middle length, which means like 10 or 12 pages. So you can, like, read one a day for 152 days. It's a big book. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) this is is about the value of being tested by difficult speech and how, in a sense, we don't really know who we are until we've been tested. Formerly, in Savati there was a housewife named Vedahika. And a good report about Mistress Vedahika has spread thus Mistress Vedahika is kind. She is gentle, she is peaceful. Now Mistress Vedahika had a maid named Kali. Actually, watch out. A maid named Kali. <laughs> Some of you know Kali as the, like the goddess of among other things destruction but anyway that's, I'm maybe reading into it too much. but <laughs> Mistress Vedahika had a maid named Kali who was clever, nimble, and neat in her work. The maid Kali thought, a good report about my lady has spread thus. She is kind, gentle, and peaceful. How is it now, while she does not show anger, is it nevertheless actually present in her, or is it absent? Or else is it just because my work is so neat that my lady shows no anger, though it is actually present in her? Suppose I test my lady. (laughs) This may be one of the relatively rare discourses which has a fair amount of humor. Not that many do. (laughs) (laughs) So the maid, Kali, got up late. The mistress, Fedahika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What's the matter that you get up so late? Nothing is the matter, Madam. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl, you get, you get up so late. And she was angry and displeased, and she scowled. <laughs> then the maid, Collie thought, The fact is that while my lady does not show anger, it is actually present in her, not absent. And it's just because my work isn't so neat that my lady shows no anger, though it is actually present in her, not absent. Suppose I test her a little more. <laughs> So the maid, Kali, got up later in the day. Then Mistress Vedhika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What is the matter that you get up later in the day? Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl, yet you get up later in the day. And she was angry and displeased, and she spoke words of displeasure. Mm-hmm. Then the maid, Kali, thought, The fact is that while my lady does not show anger, it is present in her, not absent. Suppose I test her a little more. So the maid, Kali, got up still later in the day. Then Mistress Vedhika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What is the matter that you get up still later in the day? Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl. Yet you get up still later in the day. And she was angry and displeased, and she took a rolling pin and gave her a blow on the head and cut her head. <laughs> then the maid, Kali, with blood running from her cut head, spoke about her mistress to the neighbors. See, ladies, the kind ladies' work. See, ladies, the gentle ladies' work. See, ladies, the peaceful ladies' work. How can she become angry and displeased with her only maid for getting up late? How can she take a rolling pin, give her a a blow on the head, and cut her head? (laughs) Then later on, a bad report about Mistress Vettihika spread thus. She is rough. She is violent. She is merciless. At this point, the Buddha steps in and gives his moral to the story. So, too, practitioners, a practitioner may be very kind, extremely gentle, extremely peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch him or her. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch one that it can be understood whether that practitioner is really kind, gentle, and peaceful. That's the value of being tested, the mm-hmm. value of really of taking some of our opportunities, really, as chances to grow, to learn, and to take as starting points finding both difficult <laughs> speech situations and speech situations involving people who are difficult for us, and take them as opportunities for learning. Part of it is to frame that. So we get a little bit into a habit, which is not easy. It goes against our conditioning, to take a challenge or a difficulty as a starting point for possible learning. It goes, its kind of, for a lot of us, it goes against our conditioning, our survival mechanisms, right? Survival mechanisms say, a difficulty, get rid of it. And this isn't to say, to be passive and let whatever happens, but it's to take a challenging situation as an opportunity for learning. It takes a certain amount of confidence, inner confidence and, and some tools. And we're really developing a lot of the tools further. You know, and I was also reflecting <clears throat> that some of the tools are new and fresh and it takes time to integrate them and, in, you know, to... Make them our own, you know. And I think that's why, for me, it's important that we have follow-up and continuation, and really continue the learning beyond this retreat. Because we're getting a lot of material, and it really—I think I know—Oren usually would teach the material what over six or eight weeks or more, right? And you know, and and of course, the meditation-related training, you know, goes on, can go on for years. Does go on for years, hopefully. So, a few other um, words on relationship to people who seem to be difficult for us. I thought I'd just read a few of these. Um, This is from an anonymous source. Love your enemies, it really pisses them off. Okay, I'm not necessarily endorsing all of these, but saying that they're completely lined up with what we're presenting, but for the sake of... Variety. (laughs) Um, Abraham Lincoln. Am I not destroying my enemies when I make friends of them? That's pretty lined up. Am I not destroying my enemies when I make friends of them? Michael Corleone. (laughs) You couldn't guess, this is probably not going to be lined up. Michael Corleone from the Godfather 3 movie. Never hate your enemies. It will cloud your thinking. Actually, that does line up. It's not the, there are other reasons not to hate your enemies. And, and lastly, this is really pointing to the compassion aspect. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. If we could read the secret history of our enemies we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. It really connects very much with that sense of going for the core needs and really tuning in in that way. At a certain point in my own work with difficult speech situations and working with so-called difficult people, a blazing insight into the totally obvious occurred. I had the insight that what makes difficult people difficult is that I have difficult experiences with them. And what defines difficult speech situations is that I have experiences which are difficult for me. In other words, I have what? Anger, fear, sadness, distress, difficult body sensations. Um, my my um, triggers get uh, what? I get triggered, my buttons get pushed. And that's really what makes these difficult situations difficult. So one major lens that we've been really focusing on is to learn to work with our reactivity better and to really take that as a core theme. Learn to work with how we get triggered, how we get startled, how our minds and bodies and hearts work when we're reactive. One of the reflections that I had earlier in the day when we were doing that experience... um, Well, when we were... Maybe it was more yesterday. When we were doing the experience where someone says something that basically triggers me is how challenging it is to keep one's center when you get triggered. Right? And that's really what we're being asked to do more skillfully. We're being asked... When we get triggered, and here we're talking about the difficult speech situations and being with uh, challenging people who are challenging for us, what we're really talking about is looking at how to be skillful in an interactive setting when we get triggered. When I have uh, reactive emotions, sometimes when my body is flooded physiologically, uh, when hormones are racing through because I've been startled and there's some of my survival mechanisms are, are activated, right? And it physiologically can feel very um, difficult. You know, and how do I come back to center and use the tools which we've been learning or you even use the tools which I have access to? A lot of the effect of difficult situations is to take us out of our center, To take us out of our uh, place where we can even think clearly and use our tools. And so this is what's so challenging about the difficult situations. That it's very challenging. We're really talking about how do I come back to center as quickly as possible after I've been knocked off center. And that's that's really the practice we're talking about. And so we can explore that in meditation, we can be more skillful in a protected environment, in the protected environment of meditation, of working with our, let's say, our strong emotions, or our challenging emotions, or our self-judgments, or our judgments of others, or our, my anger, or my um, sadness, or distress, And so I believe that if we want to be skillful in our speech, in these kind of difficult situations, we have to really practice and study all the ways we become reactive, and we have to be more and more skillful with difficult emotions and difficult thoughts. Not so easy, is it? It's not so easy. That's really what's called for. And so the ongoing work with meditation is right at the center of our work because there we get to practice this in a more protected environment or in this retreat, we can do that to some extent as well. We can simulate mildly challenging situations and try to come from a centered place. I think it's helpful to remember that a starting point is doing our best to come back to center, to know, to be mindful enough to know I've been taken out of my center or out of my mindfulness, out of my heart, and to find ways to come back to center. It's what we've talked about under the rubric of finding an antidote. So I think we have to develop a whole repertoire of antidotes, both for meditation and for real-life situations, what's going to help me come back to being present. You know, and sometimes it can be the loving kindness or what of the heart practices I can do. Sometimes it's to breathe, one of the instructions from some of our exercises. Sometimes it's to take a time out. Time outs are really, really crucial. You know, it's, it's because sometimes we're physiologically affected and it simply takes time for that to run its course and during the time we're physiologically flooded for example it may be very hard to come from a centered place so taking a time out really really crucial possibly being in the midst of a difficult conversation and saying I'm really feeling like you know, whatever is appropriate given the context I might say something like I feel um, like I'm not going to say something wise right now or I'm not going to be skillful and i 'd really like to you know I have to have enough presence to say i 'd really like to come back and look at this another time. that takes a lot of presence of mind right and and strength to go there. You know? One of my favorite techniques if i 'm at a meeting and something triggers me is to take a long bathroom break this isn 't one of the ancient techniques we've had (laughs) handed down over the generations. But it's very, very socially awkward for people to say, you took a really long bathroom break. (laughs) Excellent technique. (laughs) And, but... But time out to really have to. Re- I mean, I, you know, th- what I'm saying is simple in a way and obvious, right? That um, we really need to know when we're out of balance and do what we need to do to come back to balance. So, and <clears throat> it can be very helpful to s- <clears throat> to say to someone, "I really want to continue this, and there's some issues here, but can we do this? Would you be willing to talk about it tomorrow?" or or in three hours, or next week, or whatever. And that's really crucial. And that that really starts filling out some of what we mean by good timing or appropriateness. When is it appropriate to speak? I think it's not so appropriate to speak in a difficult situation when I'm off-center, when I'm not centered. And so we can can work with that uh, sense of coming back to center. For some of us, it might be to... Uh, connect with something which is really nourishing. could be to talk with a friend or to be in nature, to be somewhere which helps us come back to center. And this is is true in meditation, just just as in the flow of daily life. And then we can, using the meditative tools, using the NVC tools, we can continue to practice with difficult emotions and thoughts. And get better at them, and some of them we can have a really focused practice with for some of us, I know the theme has come up a lot here about judgment, feeling judged and uh, judging oneself. you know and sometimes we have to do really focused work on a particular pattern. You know and sometimes we can work psychologically, sometimes we can work meditatively, sometimes both. <clears throat> but I think it's important to see. that a lot of our core ways that we get triggered may be linked to old wounds or to old patterns that that we need some help in order to unravel them, in order to, I don't know if that's the right word, to understand them to go more deeply. And so part of what we're Doing when we work with the difficult situations is we're opening ourselves to some places where we might be, um, have very old patterns. They might be patterns of, um, you know, there might be certain triggers that trigger my sense of inadequacy or my sense of what, um, being flawed. Some of my, what we might call my negative limiting beliefs. We all have them. One of the beautiful things, I think, about doing this work together and doing meditation, and particularly when we share intimately, is we actually see we're all pretty much alike. I find one of the great um, difficulties for pain-causing situations is when 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 we feel isolated and we think my problems are uniquely mine. And I think part of what we might experience here is the realization that we more or less have the same kind of minds and hearts and bodies. Of course, differences, but that the similarities are great. And knowing that is such a relief, isn't it? You know, to see that, okay, I have strong patterns of self-judgment, but how many people in this room have strong patterns of self-judgment? You can, can Don't look too carefully. <laughs> yeah. And you know that's why I'm—I I'm, think some of you know I'm writing a book on that topic, because it's so—I have found it so pervasive, and because I myself am a recovering judgmental person. <laughs> to use to use that language, I'm sorry. I'm in a little funny mood. <laughs> so. So, but I think, I think we have to really work with depth with our reactive patterns. And just to know that I think that's necessary. You know, because the tools are great. But if I'm off-center, I probably will forget to use them. And if I use them, I may use them unskillfully. And so how do I, how do I work with my patterns, come back to center as best I can? You know, and I, I think it's, one doesn't have to be fully back to center. I should modify a little of what I just said and just say that it's really about being as skillful as one can be. Right? I don't want to discourage us from trying even when we don't feel centered. <clears throat> but we could feel when we did some of the exercises, when someone says something that's, that you've just told, told, uh, written on your card, a statement that you know triggers you, and even though you know it's coming, do you remember like my report, I could feel my physiology changing. You know, like it was, um, it's like being startled and jabbed when those happen. And, and just to know that that takes, um, it takes a fair amount of practice, like, like being a martial artist, to, to practice in that way. <clears throat> I want to mention one useful perspective for working with difficult situations that I've learned from um, exploring and teaching on conflict. And I've, I've, over the last few years, I've been doing a lot of uh, trainings with my colleague uh, Lawrence Ellis, um, several-day trainings on spiritual approaches to conflict. And it's been, very, um, it's been very rich work. And I want to share one essence of that work, which relates to difficult situations and relates very directly to the NBC work. So at this point, I will ask Oren to unveil <laughs> my aid, my visual aid. <laughs> Amazing, huh? (laughs) So, this is a model of the structure of conflict. Let me explain. One of the difficulties that occurs with our typical way of being with conflict is that we go into dualism. We go, typically into a dualistic structure in which often the structure is I'm right and you're wrong. If I blame myself a lot, it might be the opposite. It might be I'm wrong, you're right. But there's typically conflicts or differences so often get framed dualistically into a situation where the main option seems to be that one side wins or the other side wins. And that's symbolized here by the two ends of the two axes, A and B. So on this particular model, going to the point A symbolizes that A wins, going to the point B symbolizes that B wins. And so many of our differences and difficult situations initially get framed dualistically. You know, and we could, we could talk about how pervasive that structure is in society. How... Um, you know, think of something like sports. Um, sports doesn't have to be structured so that there's a winner and loser. You know, and I think as kids, we often play sports way less dualistically. You know, like when I was playing baseball as a 10-year-old, when, during the summer, I played all day. I don't think anyone kept a score. It'd be pretty hard to keep a score for an eight-hour game. <laughs> you know? And we played, and the score was really secondary. And there was great joy. And, um, but so much of our sports is structured dualistically, winners and losers, I think, I'm not wanting to say everything about that is negative, but it influences a lot our culture. It's no coincidence that generals and politicians use, uh, when they're talking about war, use sports metaphors. And the dualistic sports metaphor. And it's very interesting to to see how there has to be a winner and loser and how people get nervous when there isn't. When the baseball all-star game, several, I guess it was in, what was it in the was it a few years ago, ended in a tie because one of the teams ran out of pitchers due to the unskillful managing. <laughs> People were apoplectic because there wasn't a winner. You know, And it's very interesting just to look at some of the metaphors. You know? What happens in football, in professional football, if there is a tie? Sudden death. Sudden death. And so that the conditioning, and we could, of course, talk. It, law is structured very dualistically, by and large, not always, but adversarially, right? And there are other way. A lot of people are exploring other ways of doing law. It's quite interesting, right? Like restorative justice, and a lot of other models have a have a different model. I hope that's okay. To I'm not trying to be negative on law. It's okay. <laughs> I actually nearly went to law school. That doesn't really say anything here or there. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, what... um, Conflict is so often structured dualistically, like this, in terms of A or B. And some of the people that I've worked with uh, have developed a very common model these days, and probably many of you know this. It's called... Uh, a win win approach to conflict or a both and approach to conflict. How many of you are familiar with that? Some. So, some, some of you. And um, it's been developed at the Harvard Negotiation Project. It's linked with books like Getting to Yes and very influential. And uh, one of the trainings, which is quite important, is to develop the mind that doesn't structure a difference dualistically but tends to go to the both end approach. So this model comes from a great uh, peacemaker um, and scholar named Johan Galton from Norway, who whom I've studied with a number of times. It's one version of the model. Just to fill it out, uh, C on this model uh, stands for um, Avoidance of the Conflict which sometimes is quite skillful. What he basically wants to say is one wants to go to C, D, or E. He calls that the peace diagonal. to, If you can, E represents both end or win-win. Mm-hmm. D represents compromise. Anything that takes you out of the dualism of the conflict is helpful. And so sometimes it's helpful to go to C, avoidance. In a military conflict, this means a ceasefire. Very helpful. Right? <clears throat> Compromises are sometimes helpful, but they don't meet the deep real needs of either side. And so what the, some of the training for mediators, for peacemakers, is to learn to see differences and conflicts and difficult situations through the lens where we see how it tends to be structured in a dualism, and to learn how to move it to a win-win situation. One way to talk about that is to talk about the both end or the win-win as a solution to a difference or a conflict that meets the needs of both sides. Sometimes it's not obvious how to do that. And so it often takes creativity to come to the both end. So I want to do a few... Uh, short exercises, just to just to test this. I think we may do some more tomorrow. So I'll give you I'll give you a scenario, and I'd like you to think about it in terms of this model. <clears throat> okay. There are two kids in the kitchen. There is an orange on the table. Both children want the orange. Okay so using this model what's the dualism Okay What one or the other gets it Yeah um A1 A gets the orange or B gets the orange it seems to be structured dualistically so that the you only op- the orange. What you divide the orange Okay well let's hold on a sec we have a we have a a, a peacemaker mediator who is, <laughs> who is speaking up. So what would, what would uh, avoidance look like? No. No. Take the, away. the parent comes in and takes the orange away, right? That would be some... What would compromise look like? Divide it, Divide it right? Yeah. Okay, now, what would it look like to have a both end that in some ways meets the needs of both kids? Okay. Think, th- let's let's take a moment just to reflect. What's what's going to be a both-end way to resolve that? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Liz, Elizabeth, please. Um, I think it's important first to find out what each child wants. Each of child wants an orange. An
1: entire
0: orange. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. okay, that, was, that wasn't necessarily... Yeah, let, let's just say that both children... Uh, want, uh, but you're, you're right, you're, it's a good instinct. You, maybe they would be ha- uh, happy with half an orange. But let's take, for the sake of argument, they both want a whole orange. Um, you might explore the different options for acquiring more oranges. Right. There might be other oranges in the refrigerator. <laughs> you might... You know, what appears... Because the children are getting into a fight because there's one orange, right? And it, sometimes the both end is as simple as opening the refrigerator and say, look, we have enough oranges, right? right? You might also find out if one or either child would be satisfied, even more satisfied, with something else that's available besides the orange. That's because great. So the only That's great. So Elizabeth has uh, wonderful intuitions. So mm-hmm. We'll have to um, give you the... <laughs> might change your career here at this moment in <laughs> <and> the retreat. <laughs> uh, but right, we could... It might be... I mean, this, it might be that there—that this is really... You, we can think of the NBC work we do. We, it actually probes a little bit. What is the need? Is the need actually to have an orange or is it to have some food? Or is it to have a treat? We don't know. It could be that the mother may say, um, um, one of you can have an orange and the other can have an apple. And that might meet the needs. We don't know. There's a lot of details. So you... You get the. Or it might uh, a lot of possibilities. There might be one of you can have it now, and um, another of you can have an orange uh, in ten minutes. Hmm, Love we'll to see some of these might might work. Okay. So one other example, a little more difficult. Okay. I am um, about to go to my twenty-fifth um, college reunion so I'm in my late 40s. I have a teenage daughter who is like 16. Um, I really want to wear the clothes that I wore when I was 22 years old. Um, Completely objectively speaking, they don't look good. I'm joking a little bit, but they're, they're, let's say from the point of view of a strict observation, some parts of my belly are hanging out quite substantially. <laughs> okay. And, and um, the, the, the clothes appear very tight on my body. <laughs> and so forth. Now, here's the conflict. I have raised my daughter with for the sake of this example, with two primary values. Honesty and compassion. And if this was a dualistic conflict, what would it look like? It would be like... Because we can say honesty is A and compassion is B. So the dualistic conflict might appear as what would it appear like if I'm, as it were, honesty wins, I'm only honest, but not compassion? What would that look like? What would my daughter say to me? Huh?
1: <laughs>
0: that does not look great, or you're going out with that? <laughs> okay, and what would it, what would it be like? We're, we're, let's use compassion here for the, with the idea of... Um, um, what we were talking about a little earlier is a little bit unbalanced compassion, wanting to be compassionate, kind of having language but not being truly. What would that look like? Huh? You look great. You look great like you look great. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> huh? you, look yeah. and <laughs> you look good in everything. You look good everything. Okay. And what would avoidance look like?
1: <laughs> what?
0: She leaves the room or do you have the keys to the car (laughs) or something like that. What would compromise look like? She chooses your shirt and you choose your pants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very good. And what would a both end look like? What about shopping together? Yeah. The suggestion of the daughter. Yeah. maybe we can shop for something you feel comfortable in that really conveys the honest appraisal along with really caring, really caring. So that's getting in the direction. So what's, um, yeah, one, maybe one more example, okay? This is a real-life example. Between 1941 and 1995, Peru and Ecuador fought uh, four wars about land in the Andes that was between the countries, and that had no natural resources and no population. Quite a few thousand people were killed. In the late 1990s, some of the young military officers in both countries thought that this was really a crazy situation, and they wanted to resolve it. And they brought in uh, Johann Galtung to work with them. What would a both end? way of meeting uh, both sides needs, you know, and sometimes we need to see what the needs are, but let's assume that the needs are for not fighting and for, um, mm, what, having a, having a just fair solution to the, to the issue. What would a both ends? Type, what would be a possible solution? Divide the thing. Division? Mm-hmm. Compromise. Mm-hmm. Might be a good idea, but it's compromise. Mm-hmm. What's both ends, yeah? Wouldn't you need to see what, what was special about that land each? Maybe, you probably need to do that, yeah. Yeah, actually, the land is is, there's no cultural significance, particularly as far as we know, uh, and it's um, has no resources. Yeah. How about they declared a national park that is equally owned by both countries? Yeah, that's what they did, and it's lasted since the late '90s. That's what that that was the solution that came out of them looking for both ends, thinking. And, and meeting the needs, So you can see how there can be a kind of training here, right? That we can, one, you know, I think maybe we can do a little more tomorrow, but having those kind of tools to go into difficult situations and see how it's structured in terms of dualisms, study that, and using one's creativity. Galtung said that the people who are best at coming up with both end solutions are artists because of the creativity, the creativity there. So we need that. (laughs) 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 So So we can work with the difficult situations first by taking them as opportunities for learning, really being open to exploring them, we can work with our reactivity and know that to work with challenging situations, we need to have sustained work with what triggers us and and know that that's long-term work. We can develop the capacity to look at situations in terms of how they tend to be structured dualistically and how we might move out of that by both end types of... um, Um, suggestions or or maybe requests or try to move towards that. I want to make just two other points uh, in closing about difficult speech situations. One is that one of the issues which I've heard mentioned a lot in a lot of the examples is that some people don't seem so amenable to NVC-type speak, right? We could imagine, I think, um, at least a few times, Anita's been channeling that, That, if I can say that, if that's okay to say, uh, been channeling that perspective in, in terms of, you know, just kind of, we, you know, we come out, you know, I'm guessing that you're feeling this and just a kind of dismissal, right? That, 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 that um, we can imagine many situations where we might face a stone wall or we, we might face people who don't like to talk about their feelings or can't access their thoughts or emotions so well, right? And it seems more challenging to use the tools that we're working with. In those kind of situations, I think we can return to that some tomorrow. I wanted to make just really two points in relation to that. I think that's real. You know, we probably all can imagine difficult speech situations where um, it would be challenging to use the kind of approach here because we might face the other person just doesn't want to play that game, right, or doesn't want to go there. And two points about that situation. Three, maybe. What the first is that it is real, that, that the, it's real that people often initially want to push away that attempt to communicate authentically, let's say. And it's also true that large numbers of people don't have such ready access to their feelings, to their emotions, and so forth. That's, that's the case. <clears throat> it's helpful to look at a difficult situation and see and to analyze it, really, and say, let's think of two people together who are um, having a difficult interaction. Even if the other person tends to be stonewallish at times or a lot, it's helpful to look at that dyad and, and see that there are five possibilities for uh, what we might call practice. And the optimal situation would be where all five can be used. What are the five? First, I can be doing my own practice with what comes up internally. I can be working with my reactivity, my stuff, and so forth. Secondly, the other person can be doing that. Remember the optimal situation is which is and when all five of these are going to be operative. I can also, secondly, be as skillful as possible with my speech and interactive approach. No matter what the other person is doing, I can always be as skillful as possible. Similarly, the other person can be as skillful as possible. And then the fifth kind of practice is that we work cooperatively around, maybe around uh, both the inner practice and the interactive practice. And so the best case scenario is maybe I'm members of a spiritual community or maybe I'm uh, uh, working with someone from this retreat and we have some challenging situations and we use all five of those forms of practice together. That's the best case scenario. If I'm a practitioner, even in the worst case scenario where the other person is not particularly interested in his or her personal practice and not interested in speech practice and not interested in being cooperative, I still have two forms of practice that I can be doing. No matter, so that's the worst case scenario, I still can be practicing. So in other words, practice is possible no matter what the other is doing in every situation. And in fact, um, when one gets more skillful at this, there are ways, even if the other person seems like a stone wall, of touching the deeper needs of the person or touching the heart of the person. I was giving the example of Martin Luther King, or, or maybe uh, Oren was talking about Nelson Mandela. That, those situations can be interpreted. As the power of a very, uh, I would say, loving and courageous person to open hearts that didn't have any intention of being opened. Right? And that, that when we are, I think, really grounded and well developed and powerful using these tools, that's a potential. And I think we have to watch for being discouraged by the others appearing to be a stone wall. Essentially because that's, you know, in the language of NBC, that's a strategy of the person to meet a need, being a stone wall. From the perspective of the Buddha, the Buddha's teachings, we could say every person has Buddha nature. Or in Christian language, every person is made in the image of God. And difficult situations challenge that understanding, don't they? You know, they challenge it tremendously. <clears throat> but that's really, that's really a direction. As we get stronger in that, we sometimes can tune in to the Buddha nature of the so-called difficult person. And I want to end just with a, a reading wonderful story that brings out this point of how to be with a very difficult situation. Really through the fullness of presence and somehow not being caught by the way the situation may be framed by the other person. So here's the story. It's a true story. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo. On a drowsy spring afternoon, our car was comparatively empty, a few housewives with their kids, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. This is written by an American named Terry Dobson, who was studying um, Aikido, a spiritually grounded martial art in uh, Tokyo for many years with the founder of Aikido. At one station the doors opened and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing and he was big, drunk and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. Trouble was, my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the Chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity where I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. (laughs) This is it, I said to myself as I got to my feet. People are in danger. If I don't do something fast, somebody will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized the chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared. A foreigner, you need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. All right, he hollered, you're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A split second before he could move, someone shouted, hey. I should do it louder. Someone shouted, hey. It was ear-splitting. I remember the strangely joyous, lilting quality of it as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he had suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left, the drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s, this tiny gentleman sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delightedly at the laborer, as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in an easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clackling wheels, why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his socks. (laughs) The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking, he asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it is none of your business. Flux of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said, absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake, too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know. We warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out into the garden, and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down, and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing, My great-grandfather planted that tree and we worry about whether it will recover from those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree has done better than I expected. (laughs) Especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It is gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. He looked up at the laborer, eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunks face. Began to soften. His fist slowly unclutched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmon too. His voice trailed off. Yes, the old man smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer, my wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife, I don't got no home, I don't got no job, I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks, a spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. Standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-the-world-safer democracy righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically, My, my, he said, That is a difficult predicament. Indeed, sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for um, one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had seen Aikido tried in combat and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. just sit for a few minutes. Thank you for your kind attention. We have a little more than 15 minutes for walking meditation. and in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.